You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Hebrews. We've been on a, a short series. We called it, we're calling it Alone. So we're dealing with the, the solas or the alones of the Reformation and, and talking a little bit about where we get those. These things are so foundational to our faith. They're, they're so important for us to, to grasp and understand. And we've, we've talked about Scripture alone, sola scriptura. We've talked about grace alone or sola gratia. And this morning, we're going to talk about faith alone or sola fide. So, as we begin this morning, let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, It is impossible to please him. For whoever would see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him. I really am sticking to the scriptures here. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, and we pray that you would would work through inadequacy of of speech, of our fumbling, my fumbling. (coughs) Lord, we pray that as we talk about and think through your word this morning, we pray that you would work in in a marvelous way, that the name of Jesus would be honored and glorified. Lord, we pray that as we talk about faith, and we seek to understand what we mean when we talk about faith alone. 
that we're justified by faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight, understanding. I pray that we would grasp the, the gospel more clearly, hold on to it more tightly. Lord, we pray that you would work in a, in a profound way this morning, more than we could ask or think. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. New City Catechism has been printed in your bulletin for the last 38 weeks or so. And if we go all the way back to question number one, we read this. What is our only hope in life and death? It's a good question to think about. Perhaps change it a little bit to say, what is your only hope in life and death? To make it a little more personal. Of course, the question isn't talking about comfort in the midst of physical pain or ease of, of circumstances in, in life. The question is speaking about mortality. It's about coping with feelings of grief and distress during this life that is so full of, of sin and sorrow. It's a very practical question in the lives of many people who are full of, of worry, anxiety, doubt, and depression. And a lot of time, certainly not all the time, but a lot of time, that worry and that anxiety is caused by sin in our lives. And the fact is, we know that our sin deserves consequences, and this causes us anxiety. The fact is that many people are horrified about the prospect of dying or what will happen to them when they do die. I would suggest that this is the case whether people would admit it or not. The prospect of dying causes many to, to worry more than they would admit. And despite their view on the matter, even those who fall under the, the heading Christian doubt at times, don't they? I wonder how many billions and billions of dollars are spent on experts and other things that people try to find comfort in this life. What is your only comfort in life and death? It's, it's an important question. Actually, it's really a, a question that gets to the heart of, of the subject that we're talking about this morning. And here's where it gets a little bit theological. If I ask you, is your only hope in life and death believing that God somehow infuses into you grace and righteousness so that when you commit a sin, you lose that righteousness? Is it hope and comfort? Saying that a combination of belief and doing certain things, you receive a, a justified status before God only to be lost in the moment you commit a mortal sin? Think about this. Is there any comfort in you being told that only people who are good will get to heaven? What is your only comfort? in life and death? Is it to week after week 
here that, that you need to do just a little bit more. You need to do better in areas that you fall short. Is it in that you need to pray more, do more devotions? You need to serve more. You need to be more hospitable. You need to get yourself in a position where you can be victorious over sin because if you get yourself in that place, then you will have comfort. Is that good news to your soul? Is it comforting to your soul that if you follow a a great list of do's and don'ts in the latest sermon, the latest devotional, the latest Christian self-help book, then you'll finally become that victorious Christian? Is it comforting for me to tell you that all you have to do is practice a certain spiritual discipline, then you will have comfort and peace? Do things God's way and obey, then you will have comfort in life and death. Is that really comforting? (coughs) Does it bring comfort to your soul? If I say that all you need to do is make Jesus the priority, Am I making the point? I I hope I am. The fact is, those two different lists that we talked about here are a couple of really different ways of of saying the same thing. Whether it, it comes from a Roman Catholic priest or from an evangelical preacher or writer, it isn't comforting. Don't get me wrong. Praying more and being more hospitable and serving more and those things are good, and you'll benefit from them. The law or the do's and don'ts in Scripture are good things, but they're not the things that ultimately bring you comfort in life and death. And preachers that pretend that they are are really doing a a dramatic disservice. Our hope isn't in mastering spiritual disciplines or spending X number of hours a week at a local soup kitchen. Those are good things, but not comfort in life and death. I would suggest that the more we pray and the more that we read Scripture, the more that we become aware of these things in and of themselves, we we understand that they do not bring comfort to our souls when it comes to life and death. I would identify with Paul in Romans 7. The more we look at Scripture, the more we read what God desires of us, the more we're aware of how we fall short. Which leads us to despair, not comfort. You see why the catechism question is really important for us? Not only those in a a Catholic context, but also those in an evangelical context Now, the the New City Catechism is is fairly new, but it's based on older catechisms. In in fact, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, which is part of what has been called the the three forms of unity in the Reformed Church, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort. The Heidelberg Catechism is is so wonderful that Many, even Baptists, actually decided to adopt it and make it their own just with some slight changes in the areas of baptism and church government. Virtually, nobody changes the first question. 
First question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? You see the similarities between that and the new city. The answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit. He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What I love about the Heidelberg there is it speaks of the the great benefits that there are of being united to Christ. Comfort in both life and death is a benefit of being united to Christ. So this begs the question, how then are we united to Christ? If union with Christ brings great comfort in life and death, how then do we get that? How do we receive this comfort? Question 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? It's a good question, isn't it? Right? Adam's sin, his one sin, plunged the whole entire human race into sin for which the penalty is separation and wrath of God. And when Christ died on the cross, did he just undo then what Adam did and secure salvation for all? Some would say that. The answer in the catechism is no. Only those who are saved by true faith are grafted into Christ, unified with Christ, and accept all his benefits. How does one receive this comfort? How is one united with Christ by true faith. The London Baptist Confession, we read that faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. His righteousness is alone the instrument of justification. This statement in the the London Baptist Confession clarifies that the instrument whereby one is justified or made right in the sight of God is faith which is resting on Christ and his righteousness. How is one justified then? By God's grace alone, through faith, alone. Or with the doctrine that we know is sola fide, or faith alone. So for the next few minutes, what we want to do is is take a look at at three things. Really, how faith is defined. I I briefly mentioned that already but we need to get a little more specific. After we talk about what faith is, we need to ask how one gets it, how one receives that faith. And then we need to look at what it does. So let's ask the the question at the beginning, what is faith? So we begin by Hebrews 11.1. A lot of times, This is where people get their definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The problem with this definition isn't so much the problem with with scriptures as those who read it. it. It actually, in some ways, doesn't seem very clear 
but the text has been the text has been very misused here. For instance, ask yourself, what are the things hoped for in the text? I think that's where it seems unclear. That word hope causes a number of people some great consternation. We're, we're talking about, are we talking about a, a leap of faith? That's what some people, I hope that this happens. I hope I get this for Christmas. I, I hope. Are we talking about faith against reason? Kind of like wishing on a star? See what I mean? Assurance of things hoped for. Do we just say, I want this to be true, therefore I, I believe it or I hope for it, and then we are supposed to, to rest assured because we hope enough for it? As if we, we hope enough for something that it'll be true in the end? I think that's obviously not what the text is saying, but that's how we tend to, to take it and, and read it a lot of times when we don't think through it. The things that are hoped for here are the promises of the Bible given to the Christian. They're the, the benefits and the comfort that one has in being united with Christ through faith. We need to understand that, that faith does not and cannot have itself as its object. It has Christ as the object. So, we do not have the assurance of faith. We have the assurance of things hoped for. We do not have the conviction of faith. We have faith. We have the conviction of things that are not seen. It is through faith that we gain or grasp those things. Those things aren't the same in the text. When we think of, of Hebrews 11, we must understand that that definition of faith comes after the first 10 chapters of the author explaining what the object of that faith is and how Jesus Christ is greater than everything else. When we get to the faith chapter here, we're not speaking of these heroes of the faith because they have such a great faith in faith that they just hope for things, that they had blind faith. They wished on a star and it became true. They have faith. They have an object to their faith. Their faith rests on something. Just look at one verse in all of this, just to, to kind of clarify. Look at verse 26, 11, 26. 24, we'll get the context a little bit. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So get this in verse 26. Moses thought more of Christ than he did the pleasures of the world. Also, ask yourself, what is the reward? It's faith, it's faith's object. It's Christ. And by his faith in Christ, this faith that he has is, 
as an object. And as you continue to read there, it is by that faith that rested in that object, Christ, that he considered greater than, than everything that he went on to, to leave Egypt. He kept the Passover. He crossed the Red Sea. He did these things, not because he had blind faith, but because he had faith. And that faith rested, we're told, in an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. And it's before he was born. I think it's important at this point to speak of the, the parts of faith for us to understand what faith is. What is the kind of faith that Moses had? The reformers really thought about what constitutes saving faith, and we are really helped here by them. For them, there, there were three parts of, of faith. There was the, the, the knowledge there was the assent, and then the trust. Some might say, well, wait a minute. You're complicating faith. Faith is, is simple. A, a child can have faith. Why make it and complicate it and talk about three parts of faith when it's so simple that a child can, can grasp it? I think that as we go here, that, that you will recognize that what we're doing is not complicating faith, but uncomplicating it. And therefore, when we speak of the faith of a child, we're understanding what we mean. When we say faith of a child, we're not speaking of gullibility. You can get a child to believe anything. That isn't what we mean. So we need to spend a few minutes and define what is meant by faith. So we start with knowledge. To have faith in something, there are things that one must know. One must understand that there are certain tenets. In this case, it's the gospel. Paul lays this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, last to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Notice in that text, it was Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. We're not speaking of, of something that we do. This is important in understanding the gospel, that the gospel is something that was done. He died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. So we're talking about what we believe or what we know, and that is the gospel and the gospel is in a word, Jesus. The gospel is everything about Jesus. He has come. He's the king. He's the victor. He is put all enemies in under his feet in his death. He was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And in that, we recognize that God's kingdom is for perfect people. But we are sinners, and it is through the gospel that, that sinners or, or people who are far less than perfect, like you and I are, are brought in without God compromising his holiness or his justice. The gospel is important. In other words, 
It is by grace that God makes it possible for our broken relationship with God to be restored. It is in Christ Jesus that we can have righteousness that is not our own and live by the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through faith alone. So this then is the the basis for what must be known. For one to have faith, they must know the gospel. They must know what Christ has done, that he died for our sin, that we might be free from sin, that his death and resurrection was victory. It's a simple message. It's it's facts about Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Those are facts. To have faith, you must know those things. Second, this is where the the reformers said, well, there's more than than facts. There's more than just knowledge. There's got to be some form of assent or believing that the knowledge that we have is true. So the second part here, we're saying that there must be a, a mental acknowledgement that yes, the gospel is true. God did those things. Many people will hear the good news and they will say, you know, I hear you. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. I hear you. He died for sin. I hear you. He rose again. I hear you. Right? They have the knowledge. They, they, know, they know the facts. They, they heard it. And then they're just going to dismiss it for one reason or another. Yes, I, I believe God gave the law. Yes, he judges sinners. Yes, he, he does. I get it. You say those things. I, what's good for you is good for you. What's good, what's working for me isn't working for me. Right? They have the first step. They have the knowledge. They understand it. But then there's a, an, an ascent. There's, yes, God did those things. Yes, I believe he died on the cross. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that he rose again. I believe he was buried. I believe he appeared to all of those people. One can have the knowledge of the gospel and not assent to it. So in in faith, there must be an agreement with the facts. And this is where I fear that, that most people just stop. They know the facts of the gospel. They agree with them. And they say, yes, I, I believe these things. And while this is important and it's necessary, it's not sufficient in saving faith. I look back at my life and realize that I heard the gospel time and time again. I understood the facts. I had knowledge and I believed those things to be true. And the way I understood it for a long time is I thought that was enough. James confronts this kind of thinking in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and, sh- believe and shudder. The demons not only have heard the facts, but they know those facts to be true. One could even make the case that demons have a, a better basis of assent to the facts than we do. They know God and they know what he has done. They know his triune nature. They know what he did. They know why he did it. Yet at every turn, they seek to thwart his plan. It's like those of us who know the gospel. They believe the facts to be true, but then that's it. 
Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. We believe those things, but yet we fall short. The last element of true faith is trust. It's one that that gets, uh, it's a little more uh, controversial, but it's important. And this is the trust that, that, yes, I believe Jesus Christ did these things, but I believe he did them for me. I trust in them. He, he is my only hope. In other words, there must be assent, knowing that these things are true. But there's more in knowing that they're true for you. <clears throat> you know, demons know facts. They know they're true. But for one to have saving faith, there's a a trust in Christ alone who did all of these things for me. Paul says it very well in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, he's going one step further. He doesn't just believe the, the fact. I believe that Jesus died, but he says, I believe that he died for me. He took my place. So you believe that that Christ did these things, that he lived a a perfect life, that he died and rose again? That is good. But do you believe that he did them for you? Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin for you? Do you believe that he lived a sinless life and and, and fulfilled the the perfect requirement of God's law perfectly for you? Do you believe that he died on the cross satisfying the perfect righteousness of God? For you, that he was raised from the dead. For you, does that give you eternal life? Some might say something like, you know, this is all good, but I just really struggle with assurance. Like, for instance, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm a Christian? They get caught up in all of this. What if, what if God didn't choose me? I would say stop looking at election and stop trying to figure out the mind of God and look to Christ. Romans 10 is clear. Those who put their trust in Christ will not be put to shame. The object of our faith is Christ. And if he's the, the object and if we trust in him wholeheartedly, then he will not let us down. Trust that when he died, he died for you. That your sin was placed on him. That you're righteous in the sight of God, not because you've earned it in some way, but because of Jesus Christ earned it for you by living a perfect life and willingly dying on a cross for you. So this is faith. So now the question is, is how do you get it? Just think about this for a moment. Last time we were in this text, last time we were talking about grace, we looked at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. When we talked about grace, we noticed, we noticed though that it says a lot about faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, Read these verses carefully because according to these verses, faith is a gift from God. 
Some have tried to suggest that it was grace that is a gift of God here and not the faith, but that isn't the way it is said grammatically. And it would not make much of a point in Paul telling us that grace is a gift of God. Grace is unmerited favor to us by God. Now, people naturally believe that faith is something that they do, that they bring to the table. But it isn't so, and Paul makes it extremely clear in Ephesians 2. There we read over and over again that we do not bring anything to the table. Salvation is by God's grace through faith, which is a gift of God in and of itself, so that we cannot boast. I think this is a bit difficult, but it's important. And that is that those who receive the gift of faith that comes from hearing the gospel, that it is given to those who are appointed to eternal life in God's good pleasure. In the book of Acts, this is made very clear. In Acts 13.48, there we read this. And when the Gentiles heard this, talking of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, for as many were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, a host of people heard the gospel, a host of people heard the knowledge of it, many more believed the facts to be true, but there were those who trusted the gospel. They truly believed, they had saving faith, and we're told that it was those who had faith that were appointed to eternal life, that received the gift of faith. This is why the proclamation of the gospel is so important. Without the proclamation of the gospel, people will not respond to it in faith. So some might at this point say, okay, why does God then grant faith? The answer is so that people will not be able to conclude in any way, shape, or form that salvation is some way their own doing. It's not a result of works. If faith were something that we brought to the table, then one can conclude it's something that we do to merit salvation. But there's no reason to boast. Salvation is of God alone. So now we must ask the question, what does faith do? If you remember, we said that saving faith consists of three components, knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, when it comes to justification by faith alone, some don't like the last part of that because they think the trust, because they think that it's something that turns faith into a work. So we must deal with this and get this out of the way. So we ask, do you do something in faith? Is faith a work? Do you do something? And the obvious answer is yes. Even if faith only included the first two elements, one must still assent to the facts and believe them to be true. That's doing something, especially if it's the grounds for your justification. Or being right with God. You accepted the facts and believed them to be true where somebody else didn't. And for that reason, you are saved. That makes your salvation rest on you and not God, and that cannot be. Here is something else that we need to make sure that we're understanding, and that is that we have faith. God doesn't have faith for us. God doesn't believe for us. 
People believe. He gives faith, but we believe. You trust, but there's another side of the coin. You do those things, but it doesn't merit you anything. Douglas Van Dorn says that it is no, that faith is no more notorious than it is for us to breathe. Is breathing a, a work? Absolutely. But it doesn't earn you God's favor. In the scripture, the scriptures are clear. The only reason one takes their next breath is because of God's mercy. The fact is that faith is the opposite of works in Scripture. That's the point of the New Testament. But we often struggle thinking that we're saved by our faith. No, salvation is of God's grace alone. That was last time. And then it is through faith. That is the instrument that God uses to bring about justification in our life. At this point, it might help to speak in terms of causes. R.C. Sproul spoke of it this way. He talked about a statue and the causes of a, a statue to be born. So the, the process of a block of stone becoming a, a statue. And it, there are several causes. There's the, the material cause, which is the stone out of which the statue will be carved. There's the, the formal cause, which is the sketch made by the sculptor as a pattern to follow. There's the final cause, which is the reason the sculptor is making the statue in the first place. There's an efficient cause. That's the sculptor. And then there's an instrumental cause, and that's the sculptor's chisel. In our case here, we recognize that faith is likened to the sculptor's chisel. Faith is the instrumental cause, and God is the only efficient cause. God is the sculptor of the statue. There's no other efficient cause, but God uses an instrument to bring around justification, and that instrument is faith. So when we say that justification is by faith alone, we're saying that there is no other instrument, there is no other means by which God uses to bring about justification. It is always, it is always faith. Only faith. There's no other chisel. Justification is by faith alone. God is the sculptor and his sole instrument is faith. I've used the word justification several times. Let me make sure that we're on the same page. Justification <laughs> is being made right with God. It is a forensic term. It is a declaration. So when we're saying that one is right with God through faith in Christ alone, what we mean by faith here is really important, isn't it? During the time of the Reformation, Luther and the Reformers saw this as a critical issue because the church of the day was teaching that Christ's righteousness was, was infused or, or poured into ours. So when Christ's righteousness was, was infused in ours, that made us righteous. We were inherently righteous because God's righteousness was poured into ours. The problem here was with the Christian experience. When one sinned then, and if their sin was bad enough, they weren't justified anymore. They weren't righteous anymore. They were taken out of a state of justification. So you lose your justified status. Now, some evangelicals speak of much the same thing when they talk of losing their salvation. Really, it's a lack of an understanding of justification by faith alone in the scriptures. 
God declares us righteous. It's a legal term. God says, you are righteous even when you are not. The reformers said it this way. They said that we are at the same time saint and sinner. This was a a contradiction to Rome that insisted that one actually must be right in themselves to be justified. The reformers said that we are justified or declared right with God based on Christ's righteousness imputed, not infused, imputed to us so that we are only right with God based on what Jesus has done for us through his obedience, his death, his resurrection. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of what he has done becomes ours so that we stand before God saved by works but not our own works. Christ's work applied to us, imputed to us. In scriptures, the image of garments is extremely important. For instance, in Isaiah 64, we read that our righteousness is as a filthy undergarment. Not a, not a good picture. And it isn't that when we become a believer and exercise faith that we become unsinful. We know that from experience. We are still sinners. But at this time, we have a new garment. In Matthew chapter 22, we see a parable of a wedding feast. And it so happens that many are invited to that wedding feast. Servants actually go out and gather what they call good and bad people. Everyone. Because those who got invites just blew it off. So the servants actually go out and invite everybody that they see to the wedding. There's all these people there and the king comes in and sees one guy with no wedding garment and asks, how did you get in here with no wedding garment? With no wedding robe? They grab him, they take him out and put him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point of the parable is that one must exercise faith in Jesus Christ. And when they do this, his righteousness becomes their garment. The parable ends with the words, many are called, but few are chosen. Many will hear the gospel. Many will grasp it. For some of them, it will be foolishness. They'll dismiss it in one way or another. Others will think it it sounds good. They'll believe the facts. They'll believe that that Jesus died and, and rose again. There'll be Christians as opposed to some other religion. There are a lot of those kinds of people. But then there are those who really trust in Jesus Christ, who trust that when he died, he died for them. That he took their place on the cross, that he bore the wrath they deserved. In other words, there are those that believe in Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and death, their only comfort. Because they're not clothed in their own righteousness, they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if they're not clothed in his righteousness, they know that they too will be cast out to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our only hope in life and death is in Jesus Christ alone. And the only way we have hope is through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, Maybe you've, you know the, the facts. You've, you've said, okay, yes, I, I know these things are true. 
but you haven't gone that one step and you haven't said yes, but these things, I realize these things are true for me. That when Jesus Christ died, he died for me. The weight of God's wrath for sin, he did that for me. And it becomes personal. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.